0: Hello, welcome to Ona, Ross, and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal. (laughs) No, that'd be the worst podcast. In this show, we take part ourselves.
1: Yep, when they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher.
0: I'm Carrie Poppy, and if I forget what the words are or mess them up even slightly, I don't know what's happening.
1: You look confused there, but you you did well. Thank you. We are back to talk. Who are you? I'm I'm all right. No, who are you?
0: Who who am I?
1: Who are you? I'm I'm Ross Blotcher. I just said that in the intro.
0: Oh, you did? Okay, sorry. See?
1: Now you've messed it up. It was perfect until then.
0: God. Okay.
1: So we're back to talk about Bob Larson again. You know, we've got so much to say about Bob Larson because he has so much to say about himself, himself. and demons.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: The, I don't know if we'll ever run out of material. Maybe this is just the Bob Larson podcast now.
0: <laughs> yeah. You called him prolific earlier. And boy, that is the word for him. He is nothing if he is not prolific.
1: Other people are amateurlific compared to him.
0: He has written so many books. Oh my God, it made so much audio. I don't think he's quite at L. Ron Hubbard level,
1: but
0: if he goes long enough, he could.
1: That's a very good point. Yeah, I think L. Ron Hubbard would probably edge him out on output, but L. Ron Hubbard was one of those kind of penny a word writers back in the day, so he had a good head start.
0: And there's some evidence he was also using pills to get there whereas I don't think anyone's made that claim about
1: Bob. Cool, cool. Well, last time we were with you, we did a little bit of book reporting. We're going to get back into some of the content of the exorcism school lessons, but I wanted to share kind of a fun aside. Both Carrie and I, as we've mentioned, get Bob's email newsletters slash blogs slash who knows what the format is. But (laughs) uh, I was drawn to one recently. The subject line was the rhetorical question Is the Biden family cursed?
0: You open it up and it just says, no. And and of course,
1: the first line of Bob's missive is, Joe Biden is cursed. I thought this would be fun to share just because.
0: Yeah, I haven't read this one.
1: So he says, Joe Biden is cursed. That's not a political statement. It's my analysis as an exorcist. He's not the (laughs) first president to live under a curse. For decades, the Kennedy. Oh, Was said to live under a curse. The Kennedy was said to live under a curse. (laughs) The Kennedy.
0: Famously the only Kennedy.
1: (laughs) There are more than a dozen untimely deaths associated with the Kennedys. Here are the ones (laughs) most remembered. He talks about Joe Kennedy, JFK's older brother, who died in World War II when the plane he piloted exploded. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, this was in a really interesting mission related to the effort to stop Hitler from getting the atomic bomb. Oh, okay. There's a really cool book called The Bastard Brigade by Sam Keane that I highly recommend that tells that story in detail. Anyways, then he mentions that in August 9th, 1963, I actually didn't know this, uh, Patrick Bouvier Kennedy died. He was the first child of then-president John F. and Jackie Kennedy, I guess in the White House— And he only survived about two days.
0: Oh, I think I remember reading about this. I
1: didn't know that. Very sad. So that's part of the curse. Something (laughs) happened on November 22nd, 1963, involving JFK himself.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. (laughs) I think he was murdered. Yes. Yeah.
1: 1968, Robert F. Kennedy was shot and died the next day. 1984, David Kennedy, son of Robert Kennedy, died of a drug overdose. 1997, Michael Kennedy was another son of Robert who died in a freak skiing accident. Hmm. 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife and sister-in-law, were killed in a plane crash. Mm -hmm. 2011, Kara Kennedy, only daughter of Ted Kennedy, died of a heart attack at 51. The granddaughter of Robert Kennedy died by suicide in 2019. Okay. And this extends to this year in 2020. Maeve Kennedy Townsend McKean, another granddaughter of Robert F. Kennedy, and her eight-year-old son Gideon died in a boating accident. So
0: Okay. I mean, we are getting many generations outward from the center of the wheel. How I many, wonder, Carrie? How many? <laughs> but I wonder like how many this entire set would encompass how many Kennedys we got. Is this right. really that big of a slice or not? I don't know.
1: Right. And some activities are more dangerous than others, skiing, yeah. plane trips. Yeah, that covers a range Being
0: President.
1: Indeed, that was an occupational hazard in that case. So that was in a span of some 76 years that all of those curses wow. uh, inhabited. He says, is well, it over?" Well, if the last one was just in April this year, I guess the Kennedy Ugh. curse is still with them. They okay. need Bob Stat. He should offer yeah, his services. no kidding. If he hasn't already. So then he says, "Well, what about the Bidens?" And so he starts with 1972, Joe Biden's wife, Nellia, and their 13-month-old child, Naomi, were killed in a violent car crash. Most of us know that story. 2000, 2000- very, very sad. Uh, indeed. Uh, in 2015, Joe's son, Beau, died of brain cancer. Most of us know yep. about that. And that's the end of the deaths. But then he's got a very long bullet point about Joe's son, Hunter.
0: Oh, Sure.
1: So here we go. And as far as I know, this is actually true. He hasn't gone into some of the other wilder claims about Hunter Biden, but he says Hunter abandoned his wife and three daughters to take up with his brother's widow. During that time, he fathered a child. with. Well,
0: that's actually kind of biblical. If you die, your brother's supposed to marry your wife.
1: That's a good point reference tamar Bob. and judah so yeah well done hunter i guess <laughs> except he was already married then again having multiple wives also yeah. biblical add on during that time he fathered a child with another woman i didn't know about that he developed serious drug problems the navy reserves discharged him for cocaine use a lot mm-hmm. of people try to say it was a dishonorable discharge it wasn't that, that requires a, a separate process More recently, pictures and videos emerged of Hunter using drugs and engaging in pornographic sex acts. I wasn't aware of that either. Hmm. And then final bullet point, Ashley Biden, Joe's youngest daughter, has been arrested for drug use and videoed snorting cocaine.
0: Okay. All right. (laughs) I mean, that's too bad. That sounds rough.
1: So I'll abbreviate here, but we might include the audio at the end. Bob says, when people ask me, how do you know if someone is cursed? I answer this way. Consider the facts, the forensic evidence of all the tragedy and trauma associated with a bloodline. If the magnitude of bad things is outside the normal statistical probability of what could go wrong in any family, at least some of the bad stuff is the result of a curse. (laughs) That's interesting, though. Very
0: wobbly logic.
1: Yeah, the whole idea of a statistical probability is that it includes outliers on either side.
0: And the first step will always be to get the larger data set to compare it to.
1: Right. And for the Kennedys, we had 10 bullet points over 70-plus years. And for the Bidens, we have two deaths and then two kind of drug and personal problem-related bullet points. So four bullet points over the course of about fifty years,
0: I feel like the real elephant in the room here is him not drawing these connections with Trump. Where right? a lot of the family fortune comes from sex work. Oh man, has, yeah, has had many wives accused of sex assaults.
1: Yeah, let's, has let's a unpack brother this who died Trump of alcoholism
0: curse. very young.
1: Yeah, do you think it would be helpful if I sent him a bullet list of Trump curse evidence?
0: Yeah, yeah, ask him. like, I'm just confused.
1: So the Kennedys were cursed. Apparently, so are the Bidens. This is not a political indictment. It is a warning (laughs) and a call to prayer for the Biden family. Someone needs to tell Joe Biden that unless the curse is broken, more tragedies may be on the way.
0: Well, this is perfect because this particular module is going to be about breaking curses. And you might think that's a very complicated process. And indeed, it takes 10 modules to tell us how to do it. Boy, oh boy, the the step by step process I think is really going to surprise you, listener.
1: But yeah, we're out of just the pure history phase of the apprentice level that we told you about before. Now we're on level two, the warrior level of the International School of Exorcism. Warrior, warrior level. Uh, so we get going. Yeah, so just like the first level, there are ten courses, as you mentioned. Part one is called Introduction to Spiritual Warfare.
0: Yes, it is. Ross, is it? I am Ross. And this part, we get the classic conundrum, why do people suffer?
1: Yes, the problem of theodicy is a a technical term for that. So, yeah, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there child abuse and war and violence? You You kind of have to explain all that in a world with God, especially when something like that happens to you thinking of the Kennedys and the Bidens, you have to say, okay, well, supposedly I'm walking in God's ways. Why did he do this to me? Or did someone else do it to me? And did he prevent it? Could he have prevented it? So that's where I would say religion has to do a lot of its heaviest lifting and coming Mm -hmm. up with explanations. And Bob has them for us.
0: He does. And they seem to be satisfying for him. (laughs) So, uh, another question, we're going to find out, why does Satan have power? Mm -hmm. And yeah, like you said, why doesn't God stop Satan then? Even if Satan does have this power, can't God step in at some point?
1: And Bob admits, like, when these problems happen in your life, and if you don't adequately address them, that can lead to a loss of faith, it can lead to anger that borders on blasphemy, and it can fuel, this is really bad, skepticism, agnosticism, atheism, Mm. And doubt.
0: (laughs) In that order. Yes. So everyone's actually born innocent and protected from evil, says Bob. But anyone in authority, whether that's someone in our lineage or someone in our current life, can give Satan permission to harm us.
1: This is interesting, and it has a certain internal consistency to it, but it does feel very uniquely Bob.
0: Actually, it feels a little inconsistent to me in that if you can have intergenerational curses, Mm -hmm. then you aren't born innocent. It has to be sort of ingrained in you, right?
1: Yeah. These things live alongside you. I mean, original sin is uh, very common for most Christians. The idea that, yeah, you're born with sin. That's why you need Jesus's sacrifice and forgiveness. So yeah, he has these kind of it's almost the equivalent of epigenetics, where you know you <laughs> receive your genetics from your parents, but there's all these environmental conditions, specific contingencies and happenstances in your own copying events, your own cell replication that introduce mutations or uh, genetic issues that are related just to you and can then propagate and follow you throughout your life. I would say kind of in a similar way, Bob believes that, You inherit just the natural, original sin from Adam and Eve, but you also get these localized effects from the family demons and curses that are being passed down.
0: I think Bob would say that's not only an analogy, it proves him right, because I just heard him in a podcast interview from a couple years ago saying the epigeneticists are proving his theses right.
1: Oh, wow. Certainly he does make connections, and he's talked to demons who say that they can manipulate DNA, and he seems to have bought into those particular messages from those demons because he's found them consistent with whatever else he's using.
0: Very confusing to believe in DNA, but not evolution, but... Oh, whatever yeah
1: good luck with that i assume he looks at kind of very limited data sets to maintain those two separate ideas i gotta say i do like the way he laid out this problem and at least the seriousness that this does need to be addressed and explained because if you just try to brush it away as many christians do that will be seen rightly as a cop-out Mm -hmm. And I kind of like that he admitted that, that intellectual people are going to need more and a more thorough explanation.
0: Though his explanation is not any more satisfying to me than the others, but...
1: But I think he's trying to introduce, well, certainly something that's consistent with his whole theology that incorporates demons. I think he's Mm -hmm. done kind of a good job of incorporating that, but it's not the normal answers you get from most Christians, which would be, well... Evil is in the world, and we live in an imperfect world, and all of those bad things that happen are just natural consequences of us living in a fallen world. you God got to
0: have free will.
1: Free will, exactly. And then when good things happen, well, that was God. He definitely stepped in, (laughs) changed things to make things better. When you get out of the hole, yes, that is God helping you. So anytime there's an upwards trend in the chart of happenstance, That's attributed to God. Anytime it's downward trend, then it's just, well, that's coincidence. That's happenstance. That's the natural world. Whereas Bob, I think, would more actively say, no, we can suss out when it's the real action of the devil.
0: One of the associate pastors at the church where I grew up, a Presbyterian church, gave a talk where he was talking about why bad things happen to good people. And he kind of laid out more or less the standard argument, the one you and I just discussed. And then he said— Though, to be honest, the much harder question to answer and the one people seem to not really want to ask me until the 11th hour of the conversation is, okay, fine, then why do good things happen to bad people? Uh Uh-huh,
1: yeah. That's the corollary, and that's equally interesting.
0: Now, I personally, I don't know if I believe in bad people with a capital B, but— That rhymes with P.
1: That stands for pool.
0: (laughs) But— What about then the people who, at least in that moment, are not acting so ethically and somehow get rewarded for it? Right. What's happening there? What's God thinking there?
1: And then you get this whole separate thing that Bob doesn't really go into, but deferred judgment where you say, well, they will eventually pay. They will reap the rewards of their ill efforts in the afterlife. Right. They will be headed for some serious strife. So one thing that he frequently harkens back to is Job, the story of Job, because I think that bears real theological weight. That story, which is one of the oldest in the Bible.
0: Freaking sucks.
1: Yeah. Oh, Job is the weirdest thing. and
0: (laughs) It's awful.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: For those who didn't grow up with the story, it's this guy who does nothing but obey God. He's just like such a good dedicated God worshiper. And to test him, God just sends tragedy after tragedy into his life just to be like, are you going to leave me now? Are you going to finally disobey me? What do you think? Like gives him boils on his back, kills family members, sends terrible weather to his zone. And
1: what's really horrible about it is that all of it starts with a bet between God and Satan. Lucifer.
0: Oh, does it? I didn't even remember that. Okay.
1: So this is where it's really weird and it kind of stands out because it gives us this theological peak inside of the mechanics of good and evil that you don't see elsewhere in the Bible. And that's why people pick this thing apart endlessly. Everyone's got their take on Job and what it really means. But it starts with Satan gaining an audience with God. Like he comes up, you know, and he's allowed to come before the throne and talk to God. And he says, look at that Job guy. Sure, everything's going great for him. He's blessed. He's got kids and a loving wife and his health. If you let me afflict him, he would curse your name. And God says, I'll take your bet. So go ahead, do your worst to Job. Poor Job. It wasn't anything he ever did.
0: Right. It's like the jealous boyfriend, you know, his friend says, I bet if I hit on your girlfriend, she'd go for it. He's like, no, she wouldn't. I bet you $100 she wouldn't. You go to the bar and you hit on her and you see.
1: Yeah, right? So because that happened, that says a lot about all kinds of things, like the fact that Satan can still talk to God and go into heaven. And that for Bob, at least, the one thing Bob points out is that Satan can get permission to afflict you. So that's the real takeaway. Satan has been granted – Access to controvert the common grace that normally God is applying to us. So Bob finds a way that this isn't God harming us, it's Satan harming us. And that's always a tricky thing because in the Bible, there are many instances where the clear reading of the scripture tells you that God is the one afflicting people or hurting people or harming people or allowing things to happen to them. And Bob Always adds a little bit of buffer there to say, well, actually, what's happening there is that he's allowing Satan to harm you.
0: Okay, so I want to make this much easier for Bob. I say it's like a country handing out a visa. So you're still the citizen of United States, let's say. But you're going to Canada for work. Canada says, okay, as long as you abide by the laws and strictures of our country, you're kind of citizen y for a minute. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. goes, like, okay, but over time, he's still our citizen. You get that? Yeah, yeah, we get it. We get it. We get it. That's the analogy he needs to go with. Okay, I like that.
1: And the one stricture that God gives to Satan just a step too far would be to harm his person to kill him. Don't do that. He can kill everyone else. Job would probably.
0: Welcome at that point.
1: I remember even as a Christian reading that and thinking afterwards, all of Job's children die in this horrible accident, and God gives him new children. And I think that's not like fixing things. You killed (laughs) off these individuals, and now you're giving him new ones, and that's the same? That's terrible.
0: when you're uh, watching someone's fish and they die and you just replace them. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. Well, what, what about those <laughs> original children? Notice. Are they just really that disposable? That yes. never sat well with me. We could talk about Job endlessly. Anyway, Bob lets us know that the demons also know these rules about who they can and can't affect and how they can get kind of a purchase and permission on your life. How um, to
0: get that visa.
1: Right. So even if you don't, they know the rules. And of course, Bob knows the rules too. And he says that all of this necessitates us to actively engage in spiritual warfare. And he shares a Mm -hmm. bunch of Bible verses kind of talking about putting on the armor of God and fighting the principalities and so forth. So, he sums it up. We need spiritual warfare. One, spiritual warfare answers classic questions about the seeming inconsistency of God's love and mercy. Two, Mm -hmm. if given the right, Satan can circumvent the grace of God and attack mercilessly. Three, a cursed bloodline enables the devil to do inconceivable evil. And four, we must actively wage war on the devil and be willing to wrestle him to the mat in victory. So there we go. He's made the case for kind of why there is evil and a call that we need to be active in fighting it.
0: And I'd say that's all pretty biblical.
1: Yeah, he's got his own spin. But yeah, for the most part, it's uh, well-supported.
0: And I don't know, the Bible is spookier than a lot of people want to talk about it. I think Bob embraces its spookiness. (sighs) Absolutely. So Unit 2 is called Exorcism, a Contemporary Perspective. So he says that people have a mistaken concept of exorcism because of the movies. Most of us have seen The Exorcist or uh, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, stuff like that. Right. Where The Exorcists are portrayed as these sort of scared little cowards. <laughs> oh, no. The demon's here. Please go away, Mr. Demon. Right. Um, there's an exception to that, though. Ross, do you know what the exception is?
1: It's The Devil Inside from 2012. <laughs> Because (laughs)
0: Paramount film.
1: Because Bob himself served as a spokesperson on behalf of Paramount.
0: Which he's mentioned in a few places. Um, Yeah,
1: it's interesting. Like, he doesn't say he was a script consultant or he was there on set. It was just, I think afterwards they said, hey, let's get an exorcist to help us kind of promote this film. Possibly? He's not listed in IMDb. Right. I haven't watched this one yet, actually. It's high on my list. I'm excited to see it.
0: Okay, I've seen it. What'd you think? Uh, hold on, let me scroll through my mental Rolodex. Do I know anyone who worked on this movie? I don't think so. It's dumb. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: He calls it um, the popular film. Let's see how it did in the box office.
0: It did great in box office. Did it? Panned critically, well received. Oh, by okay. Over
1: a 100 million worldwide.
0: <laughs> Pretty good. Not bad. Pretty good. Yeah. Now, here's what's interesting. I was looking at this, too. I was thinking, okay, what does that mean? Is he a consultant or what? Yeah. seems he wasn't. Okay. I found, like, a video of him sort of being interviewed about what he thought after the movie, and Mm -hmm. he's referring to the script writers as if he's never really heard of them. So, yeah, pretty sure he was never involved in pre-production. Okay. The only place I could really find him drilling down on the specifics here was a blog from 2012 where he said that Paramount paid his ministry a small donation so that he would be an official spokesperson, but he's not actually okay with the movie because they do a bunch of uh, <laughs> swear words. <laughs> I so, was going to say,
1: rated our film, recommended by Bob Larson.
0: <laughs> right. Well, I couldn't find anything from actual Paramount even saying his name. So I wrote to the head of PR at Paramount and asked him if it was true, but oh that my was goodness. today.
1: Oh, okay. So we'll see if they respond to that. We'll let you know. Yeah, Fascinating. So I guess that means Bob can be bought (laughs) (laughs) to promote your demon film. Not a bad idea. Might be worth the money for a little uh, donation to his ministry. I wonder how much they gave.
0: I mean, you know, I guess I would do the same thing if I really believed in the point of a film, and they were going to give a donation to a charity. I like
1: he had one particular thing to credit it for, and he said that normally when you see the exorcist come in, it's some um, like in the original exorcist, you've got like these older wizened figures or the scared tremulous priests like you were mentioning. He liked that they had young hip clerics who were really passionate about exorcism. He thought, well, that's good. that's what we need is young blood, yeah. But he says normally the film industry presents exorcism as only taking place in creepy houses, gloomy lighting, abandoned hospitals, what have you. But he says, Well, what about an auditorium or a hotel ballroom? Which is
0: <laughs> just just a couple of random examples. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Which happens to be where most of Bob's exorcisms take place. He says, that's not spooky enough for the scriptwriters. That reminds me, I wanted to share just a little bit of insight into how we signed up for this course. Okay. I'd already been taking the first level for a long time. and I paid like nearly $700 just for access to that.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay.
1: So you and I and your former boyfriend, Milo, went to one of Bob's seminars In Pasadena in 2013. It was August 2nd. Okay. Funny enough, the day before we went to an OTO meeting I have on my (laughs) calendar. So (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, good way to get rid of your demons and then go grab some more. And also an indication of, again, just how far back this investigation goes.
0: Oh, truly.
1: But we were there, and uh, it was another pretty small ballroom if you could even call it that a little conference room in the hotel and there was a big burly guy who got exercised afterwards like bob briefly interviewed me on his microphone because he found out that i had taken the class and he had me take the picture of him with the healed demoniac
0: Nice, but
1: that was also the meeting at which we got the discounted rate of only a thousand dollars for me to take parts two and three Oh, hell yeah. That's how I got them added. So I'd initially paid $695. Now we added another $1,000 and I'm off to the races with parts two and three.
0: Also at that meeting, I saw someone I know. His name's Jason Van Glass, a comedian here in LA. He just happened to be there like in the back of the room and obviously taking it it in, in the same spirit I was, you know, just seemed to be sort of enjoying himself, but didn't seem to believe. Putting too fine a point on it. Yeah. Did we, um, did we
1: talk to him afterward? It seemed like I we-
0: did. I can't recall if you were there for it, but okay. he immediately read the room as like, I should be low key about this. Mm. So he's just like, oh, hey, good to see you here. Good to see you here. Yes. Yes. Uh, how'd you find out about this? Oh, I saw an ad. Oh, I saw an ad. Very good. Very good. <laughs>
1: if, if I recall, I think it was at that meeting. I think there were a couple people dressed up as drag queens maybe. It was like, I remember the audience had some people that you thought like, I'm not sure if they're here rooting for Bob or not.
0: Oh, I see. I see. They're there to sort of like maybe challenge his gender assumptions.
1: Right. Or just like keep an eye on what he's doing, but in a different way than we do. It felt, if I'm thinking of the right meeting, and if it wasn't this one, it was other ones, but sometimes you get a feel that not the whole audience is completely Bought and sold into Bob's ideas.
0: Yes, and there are some very specific examples of definitely that being the case, but we can talk about them later when we talk about Grey Faction.
1: Oh yeah, I want to hear that story. So anyways, Bob wants to get rid of this archaic view of exorcism as being a thing of the past, being something outmoded and no longer relevant. He wants it to be young and fresh and in hotel ballrooms.
0: Right. So he acknowledges that the Catholic perspective on exorcism is the most dominant one, but also that the Catholic Church has been kind of ambivalent about it. There was, of course, a time when they started using exorcism as a tool against their enemies, Mm. I think mostly during the Reformation.
1: And Uh, and going into the Inquisition.
0: And, of course, that left people with kind of a bad taste in their mouth about exorcism. Right. And so then they're kind of in this tough spot where they're like, oh, well, we do need to cast out demons, but you also don't want to look like jerks. Uh Um, They developed the Ritual Romanum, Mm -hmm. which is a few volumes of instructions for how to do various ceremonial things in Catholicism. And volume two has the instructions for an exorcism. And Bob holds up his 1733 copy of the ritual Romanum volume two with hand calligraphy.
1: He's rightly proud proud. of it. I'd be proud of it too, if I had one.
0: Me too. But it's a very show and tell moment. Oh, sure. He's in the middle of copy. And then he's just like, and here's mine. <laughs> it brings it out. We all just stop for a second. Ooh.
1: That's true, Bob. Your ritual romanum is better than mine.
0: It's <laughs> true. One thing I thought was interesting in this unit is he mentioned that he's been confronted by many secular journalists who think exorcism is fakery, hypnotism, role assumption, mm. or quackery. Mm-hmm. And that people most open to his work right. are. New-agey therapists.
1: Yeah, or new-agers and therapists, both.
0: Oh, okay. I took what he said to mean literally (laughs) new-agey therapists. An overlapping
1: Venn diagram, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay, fair enough.
1: (laughs) At least they have this kind of openness to the idea of the spiritual world having influence. But yeah, that, that's kind of interesting, his new audience. But it was funny in talking about the Catholic Church, he was saying that they try to focus now more on love, universal peace, affirmation, the human family. And Bob said it in such a way like that he was almost mocking that focus.
0: Oh, uh-huh. Saying like,
1: well, there's nothing wrong with any of those.
0: <laughs> but I
1: th- I think he just thinks the Catholic Church has kind of lost the plot.
0: Right. Talking about these maybe low-hanging fruit that we can all agree with. Family, wow. Family's good. No fucking duh. Right. Demons.
1: Right. But in talking about therapists, he was making the point that it seems like when therapists kind of hit a wall or get in a situation where they're having a hard time dealing with some complaint or some individual issue, that's where they become a little more open to hearing, well, what do you have to say, Mr. Exorcist?
0: Can I pass my client off on you? (laughs)
1: You're right. Yeah. And and who knows how those interactions, well, A, if they even happened, but B, how they went down. We're hearing Bob's side of that story.
0: Absolutely. I can also imagine. I mean, I think we've all been in this position where you're just like, okay, fine. Do the thing. Let's see what happens. Maybe that's part of the process for you. Right. Let's go for it. Or
1: maybe it will speak to this particular individual. Maybe it's just the kind of therapy they need. It's unconventional. It's weird. But maybe it speaks to them on a cultural level. Or maybe it gets results, even if we're not necessarily signing into your theology.
0: Right. The mechanism is different in my mind than yours.
1: Yeah. He used the phrase evil interjects, which I hadn't heard before, as like a term that psychologists or counselors will use in describing these uh, things that feel like entities.
0: Right. I think here we're definitely talking about that middle of the Venn diagram, the new AG therapists who feel like, oh, some kind of evil has entered the conversation here, but I don't want to be too religious about it. He did say his worst enemies, the worst enemies of his work, are strict religionists.
1: Yeah, that's interesting.
0: Typically fellow Christians who just think this is kind of either improper or overstepping the bounds of what your power should be in the situation.
1: Right, um, or they're cessationists yeah. and they believe that
0: mm. these
1: just don't happen anymore. And so you're making us all look bad, Bob.
0: Yeah, you're making us all look nutty.
1: I mean, he's equally strict on this particular issue, just in the opposite direction. But yeah, he has sure. he has a problem with that religious fastidiousness when expressed by the other side.
0: He also noted that some of his best friends are secular psychiatrists. And I would love just a short list, even just one name.
1: Oh, yeah. Just one name. Yeah, Carrie would love to talk to <laughs> you.
0: There are so many secular just single names on these lists. I'd like to have. <laughs> Is that one Satanist you're friends with? You said there were several dozen. Just one. Wait, one hold with on. The phone number.
1: Let me add that to uh, my list of questions to ask Bob.
0: Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you for keeping a list.
1: Can you name a secular psychiatrist who, I'll rephrase this later, buys into your methods?
0: So he said, now, some people will think that someone who's experiencing a possession is actually experiencing mental illness. But don't worry. This is a hard thing to spot. It requires a great deal of discernment. But I will be teaching you later on in the course how to spot the difference between someone experiencing mental illness and someone who's possessed. Mm -hmm. And there also is overlap because mental illness can set the stage for possession. Okay?
1: Right. Clear as mud.
0: Yeah, exactly. He says very often it's a little of both. Where the danger is, is branding at 100% one or the other. There's probably going to be both.
1: Which is certainly an option worth considering. I'm not saying it's logically inconsistent. I'm just saying it gets very muddy very quickly.
0: And later on, we'll decide whether his method for distinguishing between the two would work so well.
1: Another point of contention he has with the church is a lot of these kind of more liberal theologies that tend towards universalism. As he sees mm-hmm. it, that's the kind of uh, everybody can get to heaven in different ways. There's not going to be any big day of judgment. God knows your heart. This is kind of more lovey-dovey approach that doesn't require, you know, like strictly, you must accept Jesus and say these words to have him in your heart. Bob has no time for that. That's it doesn't
0: validate all the time I've sunk into doing this.
1: Exactly. Right. And so uh, no, God, it for free. God is far more specific about this. Someone had to <laughs> die for your sins and you have to accept that gift and Satan is real.
0: Anyway, he tells us near the ends that we should be rational and spiritual, which all right. I'll take that.
1: Yeah, one of my uh, favorite pastors from my Presbyterian church, he would say Christians should have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And I always Ah, like that.
0: Assuming it's not the Epoch Times. Oh,
1: oh, they're the worst.
0: So then we get to Unit 3, The Catholic Approach to Exorcism, Part 1.
1: I would love it if just one time he forgot to do the Part (laughs) 2. But no, he remembers.
0: You know, a lot of evangelicals are very... uh, tentative about approaching the subject of Catholicism because, Mm -hmm. you know, there was a big famous fight between (laughs) the Protestants and the Catholics.
1: It's funny. It's kind of like the U.S. and the U.K. getting along. You're like, we all know that we were the splinter group (laughs) that fought you tooth and nail to get away from your control. You know, we're friends now. Even though it goes farther back, it feels like there's even more animosity between the Protestant church and the Catholic church.
0: Also on that note, always important, I think, to stop and remember, none of the people involved in any of that story are alive anymore. We're just talking about strictures that have survived. Such a weird notion. (laughs) Anyway, so he says it's good to understand the Catholics because they're the ones who have maintained this practice all this time, which is true. They've been the most consistent about saying... Exorcism is real and you should always have someone available who can give you an exorcism if they need it.
1: And Bob always bends over backwards to not make excuses, but at least kind of qualify his affection for the Catholic Church just to say, yes, I appreciate what they've done. They've kept this tradition going, but we have disagreements. We could go into that somewhere else.
0: Right, and we probably never will. Mm-hmm. So he mentions that he has people who come to him because they are Catholic, but their priest or their diocese won't give them an exorcism. They see them and they say, I, you know what, I think something else is going on for you and you should go to a doctor or whatever. Of his and stories like, of no, people. No, I'll go see Bob Larson.
1: Right, right. I mean, of his many stories of people who come to him, that sounds the most credible.
0: Good point. I think I'm with you there. So he says the same may come with us. You know, when we're exorcists, Mm -hmm. we will probably have Catholics showing up. So again, you want to have some idea of this heritage from which they come so you don't just sort of culturally shock them.
1: And I I think we may have mentioned this before. Maybe it was part of that 1999 update to the Ritual Romanum, though it may have been some other, you know, church formality, but at least within the last few decades— if you want an exorcism, it's not as easy as it used to be. It used to be any priest was kind of equipped and ready to perform an exorcism. Now you need to have, according to Bob, permission from someone at the bishop level or higher, and then someone at the bishop level or higher needs to actually conduct the exorcism. And he'll tell stories of someone— asking for this and waiting six months to actually have someone come and talk to them. And that's not good when you're trying to get an emergency exorcism because you know someone's spitting pea soup upstairs.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that sort of quieting down you're referring to started in actually the 60s during Vatican II. That's when the Catholic Church kind of had a huddle. Uh and said, okay, listen, the wider world seems to think we're a little kooky. What can we do to save our image? And one of the determinations they came to was like, let's quiet down the exorcism thing. And then in 1999, that got kind of codified into an updated ritual Romanum.
1: And though Bob might take exception with some of the specific miracles that Catholics claim, he likes that they're officially open to miracles, that they believe in miracles. And so he talked about the water at Lourdes, where many people go to receive healing. And Bob was cagey about it. He said, I don't know if they're actually getting healing, but I like that they believe in miracles.
0: Boy, the water at Lourdes, that's a whole uh, murky thing, if you will.
1: Yeah, we should go there, get some water.
0: I'll go there. Yeah. I'll go there, maybe bring a nurse with me, but I'll go there. (laughs) So... Bob explains how evangelicals usually spot demons versus how Catholics usually spot Mm, them. mm -hmm. So with evangelicals, he mentions four basic categories, though he nods to there may be more things as well. So the first is difficulty or torment while reading the Bible. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. So So
0: Already I'm like, okay, that was me. Like there were plenty of times where I was like, Oh, I don't know about this. Oh, God, this seems bad.
1: Interesting. Okay, because the way I interpret Bob saying that is that you actually have like physical difficulty getting the words out, like even reading or comprehending or not just like taking issue with it, but like someone gives you a Bible to read and you can't say the words, which encourages me because I still read the Bible plenty and it makes perfect sense. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's interesting. I bet he would accept both definitions if he needed to. Sure. Number 2, feeling a hindrance while worshiping. Again, I remember struggling with this so hard.
1: I think every believer feels this at some point. I know I did. You're I in worship the and the church always leaves like, ah, like 20 minutes to half an hour to sometimes a full hour of just pure worship. You're not hearing yeah, a sermon. You're listening to praise music, and this was a time for the mind to kind of wonder and start thinking about problems in your life and where God falls in all of this, and there are certainly What are the
0: ingredients of mayonnaise?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sometimes you start thinking about lunch, but I remember that, thinking of these kind of theological problems and things not fully Mm -hmm. making sense during a worship time, and that feeling especially— Like
0: Sacrilegious uh, or something. Yeah,
1: yeah, feeling very guilty for having those thoughts. And so if I had Bob in my life then, and maybe even I did have a bit of this in my mind, I might think, oh, that's a demonic influence or maybe a sign of me not being right with God that I'm having these thoughts.
0: Interesting. So for me, it was... Well, what is worship supposed to feel like? I'm singing to God. I'm saying he's good. Mm -hmm. Is that worship? If I sing a love song to someone, am I worshiping them? Is there some essence I'm supposed to feel of worship that's supposed to be happening in me? And am I feeling it? I don't think so. Is everybody
1: else around me feeling it? It looks like Cindy's feeling it.
0: I remember bringing this up like in small group and some of my friends would kind of be like, oh, I don't know. And it just seemed like. Uh Uh-oh, I am alone. (laughs) I <laughs> right, that. But looking back, I'm like, they just weren't a tortured thinker. You know, they were just like, I'm supposed right. to stand here and sing, da, 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 cool, did it, did the worship. Yeah.
1: Um, hey, good guy.
0: <laughs> I am a tortured thinker. Um, you know, now I think of it, and I think of like, the way we talk about love, you know, so many people say these things that I think end up being really harmful for some people, like, Oh, if you meet the right person, you're just gonna know, you're gonna know right away. And mm-hmm. oh, God, you'll know for sure. If it's real love, oh, my God, you know, it <laughs> the first set, what? That's like so horrible. Because right, that might then you're been-
1: left with all of these subtleties of life and feeling like, I don't, maybe I feel 20% closer to what you're describing.
0: Right. Oh, I mean, I really feel like I love him, but maybe I love him about as much as my sister, but then like I want to kiss him as well. I don't know. What is that? <laughs> yeah. All these things are subjective states that we try to put way too point on point on. Right. Anyway. that
1: can work really well for people who maybe don't have that tortured mind or mm-hmm. those emotions or feelings do come to them easily. I think of like the burning bosom for the Mormons.
2: You know, for mm-hmm. some people,
1: maybe that's a really easy thing. I think for many former Mormons, they would say that's a lot harder to feel. So, yeah, I, I'm with you in the Maybe that's what category. the Mormon
0: woman pose is. She's like clamping down the heartburn.
1: Oh, my bosom is burning.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: I need some prevacid.
0: <laughs> that's exactly it. Okay, so the third way to spot demons in the evangelical church is the urge to sin or having blasphemous thoughts. Hmm. An urge to sin. I mean, come on, everyone struggles with that.
1: Yeah. And he throws in overwhelming despair, depression that leads to thoughts of suicide. I mean, Yeah, like, that's
0: number four. Yeah. W-
1: what a thing to lay on top of all of those other doubts and questions <laughs> you're already know. having. Like, oh, I'm failing God. Oh, no. My relationship yeah. with him is bad.
0: Let's focus on that instead here. of my
1: problems. Oh, oh I know. That's yeah. terrible.
0: Um. Okay. But how do Catholics spot them? So... He didn't make a very clear delineation here. I got the impression that maybe Catholics would take those four things into consideration as well, but would add some others too. So aversion to religious symbols, mm-hmm. person who doesn't want to be near a cross, doesn't want to be touched with holy water, doesn't want to see a priest.
1: And This is where Bob gets into why he uses a cross. And he says he used to not use a cross, and he thought that was just kind of showy and silly. But then he watched a Catholic exorcism and mm. how effective the cross was in getting a reaction from the demon. And oh, he wow. said, wow, if this person can use it and it seems to get a real reaction out of the demon, it seems like a great tool. And why am I not taking advantage of it? Then also holy water. Bob uses holy water. And so he had to kind of then explain to all of his Christian Protestant cohorts saying, oh, no, I haven't gotten Catholic. It's just these actually work.
0: Just for the listener who's still sort of working this out in her head, you have to remember that the person receiving the exorcism knows what a cross is, Mm -hmm. knows that supposedly demons are not supposed to like them, so her reaction... Maybe more culturally invoked than even she realizes.
1: Right, this is such a situation where you kind of hear Bob describe these interactions, and for me, you know, I'm holding this alternate explanation in mind. like, well, if we look at this as kind of a form of theatrics, we can see how the holy water being aspersed on the person, the cross, the anointing oil, the Bible that he hits people with. All of that, all of that just kind of plays into the stagecraft. But of course, Bob has a a slightly different vantage point.
0: I just thought of a really easy way to test Bob. Go to one of Bob's things and bring some other book that's dressed up as a Bible and Mm. just some non-consecrated water. See if it works just as well. Right. Go there and join him and use him.
1: The cover's a Bible, but the inside is a thesaurus.
0: (laughs) Sure. Pick your own book, listener. Listeners, let us know on Twitter, what book would you put inside your fake Bible?
1: Is it Moby Dick? What is it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It should probably be something fairly long.
1: But his explanation is that all of these symbols are just outward expressions of our internal faith. Of course, that's what really needs to be there.
0: He also says with Catholics, possessions tend to fall into categories. So there's haunting, there's tormenting, where a demon just kind of has it in for you, but Mm -hmm. maybe isn't inside you. Obsessions, where demons make you fixate on something. Oh, yeah. And and then possession was another category of possession. Confusing. But he said evangelicals and Catholics both struggle with how to handle these exorcisms. I think quite accurate.
1: It's interesting. uh, Also, he denotes that the Catholics believe that you have kind of a different categorization of possession that animals— or even objects can have demons oh, right. within them and can be addressed with prayers of deliverance or liberation. So that's definitely something different. Also, he points out to any Christians who still have these kind of lingering doubts like, "Wait a second, we've been raised to be leery of all of the iconography and imagery that the Catholic Church uses. It's almost kind of a abrogation of the 10 commandments." rule not to have graven images. And Bob Mm. says, well, look, Protestants have pulpits and altars and rails and dancing and banner waving, robed choirs. Even some of them will blow shofars, these uh, ram's horns. So he says, you know, we've got our own accoutrement as well. So let's not lose sight of that.
0: Yeah, total fair point. It's very easy to see things from other cultures, for example, Bob as spooky and strange and imbued with strange spirits and forget that we have our own cultural signifiers. For example, Mm -hmm. if you want to take a look at Bob's book about the New Age, you can read about how pretty much every single Eastern symbol is evil.
1: Yep. Any other cultures, precious symbols and artifacts and instruments even are bad. Bad and
0: scary because they give him the heebie-jeebies. Right.
1: Whereas ours are totally good. But he says one thing that the Catholics and Protestants share is that they both are hesitant to admit just how common demonic attacks are. Mm. And, of course, demons are not Catholic or Protestant. So
0: when (laughs) when the
1: rubber hits the road, yeah, it doesn't matter because they don't believe either of those things. They do respond to your beliefs, and that seems to be kind of an interesting point. And that's why they respond to the presence of the cross or the holy water that Bob believes that they'll kind of take on the spirit in which it's presented, and they'll respond accordingly.
0: Okay, so I was just thinking, evangelicals say all you have to do is believe that Jesus died for humanity's sins and you'll be saved, Mm -hmm. and that if you add anything else to that, no, 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 that's bad. Right. The demons believe that much in this theology. Mm -hmm. They know that Jesus died for humanity. So they should be Christians. Right.
1: <laughs> I think they're just in a separate category. They're not covered by the grace covenant. It doesn't right. apply to them. They are not descendants of Adam and Eve. Jesus did not die for them. They had their chance. They made their final decision when they left heaven with Lucifer.
0: Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I buy this.
1: Yeah. I would I'm be... starting to
0: think this all isn't right.
1: Just like I want to teach a great ape to sign can I accept Jesus into my heart (laughs) and see what kind of answer they get? I would also love for someone currently afflicted by a demon to try as the demon to plead with Bob for salvation. Help me accept Jesus. I want to be back in his good graces.
0: Mm -hmm. What would Uh, Bob do? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob would be like,
1: you cannot go to the pit.
0: Actually, that reminds me. In seventh grade girls, small group. I remember the leader talking about having, I don't know if she actually saw the exorcism or just heard this story, but that the exorcist had said to the demon, you have to get out of this boy. Christ died for him. And that the demon said, for him. But what about for me?
1: Oh, shit. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I kind of got my wish there.
0: Yeah. But not with Bob. Bob. You know, the woman who ran that small group was very cool about actually dealing with tough questions and sometimes being like, yeah, that's a stumper.
1: Ah, okay. But without the added action of deflection, oh, I'll put that on the shelf. Someday I will ask God when I get to see him.
0: Right, exactly. She would
1: just say, yeah, yeah, I got no answer.
0: Yeah, that is shitty for that demon, right? I Uh, agree. Good
1: for her. I think that's something really important for adults to model for children
0: just oh, that, uh-huh.
1: yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. And then yeah. if it's something you can look up, hey, let's look that up together and have that uh-huh. sharing moment. I just like it when an adult is able to tell a child, like, meh, beats me.
0: No idea. I'm dumb. I'm dumb as a rock. What can I say? Now
1: you've taken it too far, Carrie.
0: <laughs> That's what I'm going to start saying to you, my niece, Sunny. <laughs> Alicia's daughter. Uh, I don't know, Sonny fucking idiot. No fucking clue. What can I say?
1: <laughs> no, you didn't get the right takeaway, Carrie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I know the right takeaway, and it is that you want a new bra. I hear you.
1: Oh, yeah, Carrie. Tell me about bras. How do I get one?
0: Oh, my God. Well, there's a lot of ways to get bras. You just basically need, like, two cups You know, you can even use cups from your kitchen cabinet tied together with string, but they probably won't be that effective. If you want a really good bra, you want a third love bra.
1: Oh, yeah. I was going to suggest, like, maybe taking clam shells. Yeah,
0: that's one way.
1: From a clam and tying them. But you know what? This sounds a lot more convenient. It sounds maybe higher Mm -hmm. quality, less scratchy.
0: Yes, won't fall right off your chest immediately. Mm-hmm. I have a few Third Love bras. They're very comfortable. They're great t-shirt bras. Uh, but then they also have them up to like the thing you'd wear under a ball gown. You can get it all. Right. They also have half cup sizes. If You're in between. Let's say you're kind of an A, but you're kind of a B. You can Get the right. A and a half.
1: Yeah, Third Love uses the measurements of millions of people to design bras with all-day comfort and support in sizes double A to I. Including those half cups you mentioned.
0: Pretty nice.
1: And like you say, variety of styles and colors. My wife has one that's more functional and one that's more decorative, but they're all great. And
0: they're made with memory foam cups and they have these great no-slip straps. So they're kind of got an accordion design on there. So they actually stay on your gosh darn shoulders. It's great. Smart. I know. And the band won't scratch you because the name's just printed right on the band. Right. No label
1: to hang out and get in the way until you cut it off. Super smart.
0: Yep. They thought about this. Exactly. And they stand behind their product. So if you don't love it, every customer has 60 days to return it.
1: And Third Love donates all of their gently used returned bras to people in need, supporting charities in their local San Francisco Bay Area and across the U.S.,
0: so Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering our listeners 10% off your first order. Whoa.
1: Go to thirdlove.com slash no right now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 10% off your first purchase.
0: That's thirdlove.com slash no for 10% off today.
1: Oh, that's fantastic, Carrie. Makes me want to tell the world.
0: Oh, okay. What
1: would be – I'm looking for a way to get a message out to the world. How do I do it? Well – Any ideas?
0: You have this podcast that you're already talking into.
1: Okay. Or well, what else you got?
0: Hmm. I guess you could do skywriting.
1: Oh, hire like an aerial billboard yeah. to send a message. Yeah. Yeah, though those get pretty expensive pretty quickly, right? And ha- yeah. And have a very limited character count.
0: And uh, carbon footprint. You know what? Okay. I think I have the right answer for you. Okay, yeah. What about a website?
1: Oh my goodness, that's perfect. That's exactly what I'm thinking of.
0: Yeah? Yeah. Oh, I, excellent.
1: Because I could probably blog or publish content there.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You could promote your physical or online business or your podcast uh, the, or how much you like bras.
1: What if I want to announce an upcoming event or a special project? Can I do that on a website?
0: Oh, you can absolutely do that on a website, but you can especially do it on a Squarespace website. Is it? Do okay- you know about Squarespace?
1: Squarespace. Oh yeah. Uh, they're the best. They have beautiful templates created by world-class designers. They have powerful e-commerce functionality. They present a new way to buy domains and choose from over 200 extensions. They have 24-7 award-winning customer support. Why didn't I think of that?
0: I don't know. It sounds like you're really well-versed in Squarespace. So I'm not sure why you let me explain all that, but... (laughs) No, I I think that should be your top choice, especially since you do so many things with your life. You know, you're a producer, but also an instructor, but also a record label and a furniture maker and a graphic designer and a studio and a spa and an athlete and an interior designer and a lawyer and a financial service operator and a consultant and a healthcare.
1: I am most of those things, but if you listening are any one of those things or for whatever you do, check out squarespace.com slash oh no for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch... Use that offer code Oh No to save ten percent off your first purchase of a website or domain.
0: Hell yeah! But while we're on the subject yes. of messages in writing, I have one right here for you that I printed out on this mimeograph.
1: Okay, can you hand it to me over the uh, the Zoom call? The zoom.
0: Oh, there you I, are.
1: I got it here. Okay, it looks like this is oh, it's a jumbotron, mm-hmm. and it's a message for Tom from
2: mm-hmm.
1: Colton and Rajan.
0: Yeah, what does it say?
1: It says, happy 30th birthday. Let's have a party after COVID.
0: <laughs> <Aww>. If <laughs> uh, I were Tom, I'd be touched.
1: That's great. But
0: I'm not, so I feel neutral about it.
1: Boy, you know, I feel like there's so many things I've said. After COVID's done, I can't wait to do X, but I haven't made a list. I feel like I should yeah. start keeping a list.
0: Yeah, I feel like we're all going to have to put our heads together and be like, okay. So you guys go to the movies on Monday. Mm -hmm. We're going to go to mini golf on Monday. (laughs) Tuesdays, R through Z's get to go to the bookstore. (laughs) Okay.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. I'll be hiking on Saturday at 6 a.m. You can start at 9.
0: (laughs) Right. Just so we don't all flood the world.
1: Happy birthday to Tom. That's awesome. 30, the big 3-0.
0: Yeah. Dirty 30, as they say in The World According to Garp. Ah, that's what they say.
1: Well, Carrie, while we're looking at jumbotrons, I actually have one here for you. Oh, okay. Let me give it to you.
0: Boy, we should have just kept our own and read them both. But okay, that so send it on through the Zoom.
1: Made more sense. Here you go. I'm feeding it to my camera.
0: Burp, 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 burp. Ah, oh, excellent. Oh, I love this paper, Ross. This is beautiful.
1: Yeah, that's a uh, eighty weight paper.
0: Oh, no wonder. Very nothing thick. but the best. Thank you so much. Oh, okay. This is a Jumbotron for a podcast. I love podcasts. It says, What they believe is a documentary series asking members of different religions about their spiritual lives. Nice. Creator, host, and avowed atheist Franklin Crawford has sat down with a messianic Jewish pastor, a wan Buddhist reverend, a master of Jediism, and many more. (laughs) And so you can get beyond the Wikipedia page to hear people speak about their faith. If you want to support this series, you can visit whattheybelieveseries.com, mention this Jumbotron when you donate any amount, and you'll receive an interesting fact as thanks.
1: Oh, probably an amazing fact. I hope so. That's fantastic. Well, we appreciate you coming here, and it sounds like you are definitely down with the kind of conversations that we enjoy. Just don't talk to Bob Larson just yet.
0: Yeah, (laughs) please.
1: We're covering what he believes. But yeah, fantastic idea for a podcast, whattheybelieveseries.com. Dot com.
0: All right, so Unit 4, Catholic Approach to Exorcism Part 2.
1: Whoa, who would have seen that coming? (laughs)
0: we did cover a little of this in our conversation from the last unit, Mm -hmm. um, because some of it deals with Vatican II. But this starts with some history about how the Catholic Church changed its approach to exorcism. Of course, during the Reformation, they had used exorcism to silence their critics. They went, whoops, bad. I guess around 1999, they started saying, okay, let's avoid all the sensationalism with the exorcisms. Mm. And in particular, let's not make them big public events. So don't do them in your masses. Don't have big audiences for them. This should be sort of a private affair.
1: (laughs) Yeah, despite what... Bob does with all of his exorcisms. Clearly, he's not in that camp. It's interesting. I just realized Bob, at least in these courses, I don't think he ever really addresses the visual history of demons, the cloven hoofs, the half-man, half-beast, the red color, the horns and how veridical or useful those ideas are. He does talk a little bit at the beginning of this course about how they've just become kind of normalized in our culture and we all have this sort of visual imagery of demons and devils that's uh, given to us from the Catholic Church but has made its way into, like, the mascots for a football team or characters in films or comics uh, or cartoons. Yeah, I kind of think that's interesting now that Bob never— covers the iconography and the visual stylings, because I remember hearing as a Christian that, well, A, you know, God is not a white man with a beard as much as we like to visualize him as such and use the he pronoun for God. In the same way, the whole idea of the pitchforks and the red skin and the glowing eyes and all of that doesn't necessarily come from scripture. That's all just kind of artistic convention. And you can look at specific artists throughout the years who introduced Those little pieces that we now interpret as a demon, descriptions in Dante's Inferno and the paintings of Hieronymus Bosch and William Blake, they've all kind of created this kind of cultural understanding of what a demon or even an angel looks like. Kind of like Haddon Sundblom making Coca-Cola posters gave us the Santa Claus that we all see now. So uh, I would love to talk with Bob about that and see kind of just how much he's delved into that. If not, yeah, we and, should talk about that ourselves.
0: And do demons look like anything? Do they have masks? Do right.
1: they
0: have personages?
1: Yeah, can they take bodily form? Do they right. do they change a human form so much that it's recognizably demonic? These are good right. questions, Carrie. Because
0: Thank you, thank you. Because in the last... Unit of this course. In unit 10, I think he sort of nods to the idea of them sort of being amorphous, even gaseous. Mm. So, hmm, that's interesting. He also had tips to someone named Father Gabriel Amorth, a Catholic that always promoted exorcism, just tirelessly was like, nope, this is real. We need to not be shy about it.
1: And what a perfect name for a chief exorcist.
0: Yeah, definitely. Amorth. He was called The Pope's Exorcist because Mm -hmm. JP two, John Paul II, was into him.
1: He also highlighted a very early pioneer in exorcism, kind of in the days of the Reformation era. He recommends a book called The Vatican's Exorcist about Girolamo Mengi. Who lived from Oh,
0: I've heard of that name.
1: 1529 okay. to 1609. He did research of early church documents and pulled together a lot of the information that was very useful in putting together some of these later documents in the Ritual Romanum. And Mangi advocated for warranted exorcisms. And he even kind of uh, generated a list of signs of possession. I thought this was pretty fun. So these are five ways to identify... That an exorcism may be taking place. Maybe you encounter someone and they're speaking in a language unknown to the host person.
0: Oh. That's something that happens all the time in churches. You
1: might have a demon. Yeah. And I guess where do we draw the line for what is a language? But I kind of assumed this to mean like uh, German or-
0: Uh, or Italian. Yeah, exactly. And then the person what swears up and down, they don't know Italian. Right.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Someone just
0: spoke to me in Spanish and then was like, I don't speak Spanish. I wouldn't be like demon. Uh, I'd be like liar. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, are you sure you didn't study that language for a few years in high school at least? Can we get someone who actually speaks the language to affirm that you're really speaking it? Uh, Right, yeah, yeah. This is an opportunity for more questions. But okay. Number two, revealing knowledge that could not have been known by the host person. Mm-hmm. so this kind of reminds me of spiritualist readings as well like yes. oh I knew that fact I knew your mother kept her locket in the box on the shelf I knew that
0: yep. yeah lots of Teresa Caputo there totally. and also stage mentalists do that mm-hmm. it's a learned skill
1: <laughs> sure but uh, yeah, oh okay uh, uh, also right. if there was supernatural happenstance maybe that might be one way of detecting it another sign and this one I got to say, has some merit, supernatural strength.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Feats of strength, like you would do at Festivus. And Bob said that he's seen this in his day. And I always say, okay, you record everything, Bob. Where's the recording yeah. of that?
0: And if it has been a long time, how long? Why that long? How Why... Did demons stop doing this in the 70s? What happened?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Again, more questions. Huh? We're full of questions. Mm -hmm. Number four, aversion to sacraments and holy objects. All right. And this fifth one, Bob even says is incredibly rare, but he says he's seen things that might qualify. The vomiting of strange objects.
0: Oh, cool!
1: And this tells me it might be something that was I don't know, cool or fashionable to do in the fifteen, sixteen hundreds. It reminds me of like the lady who birthed all the rabbits, you know, and kind of found essentially a magic trick way of making it look oh, like. Oh, I, I
0: don't think I know that story, but okay. Oh,
1: yeah, that's a wild one. That would take me way off topic, but it's a okay. pretty fun story of this a woman in the seventeen hundreds, I'm pretty sure, who was claimed to have given birth to a bunch of live rabbits. <laughs>
0: That's great. Is there a book about her?
1: Oh, I'm sure there is.
0: It's all right. All of America is Googling this with me, so that's fine.
1: Anyways, so fashionable then, but maybe not so much now, the vomiting of strange objects.
0: Hell yeah, Mary Toft.
1: Just that whole list reminded me so much of the similar proofs that we hear for reincarnation, where in India it's very popular to pass around stories of little children who have memories of being in a war and they say, oh, it was so specific. He perfectly described World War II or something like that. Or right. of xenoglossy, of you know, being able to speak some strange language that they don't know. Yeah, similar stories within the Catholic Church. And so, Girolamo Mangi also wrote The Devil's Scourge in 1587, and that was a model for the ritual Romanum. And then you yeah. mentioned the popes are part of this whole story, Pope Leo Thirteenth believed in calling on an archangel, a uh, Michael specifically, to vanquish evil. Pope Paul VI, who was pope from 1963 to 78, said that evil is not merely a lack of something, but an effective agent, a spiritual being. That was another kind of positive assertion Bob could point to. And then Pope John Paul II, this really surprised me. Pope John Paul II not only had his favorite exorcist, but he himself performed three exorcisms.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay.
1: And he even mentioned the phrase writhing in vulgarities as another kind of sign of possession of exorcism. So it was at this moment as I was writing my notes, I was searching for something in my notes and I did a search for the word ritual and Uh the first result was spiritual
0: Oh right! And I
1: got all excited. It's like, oh, whoa! The word ritual is two thirds of the word spiritual.
0: <laughs> whoa, yeah. What's
1: a spit that we would have a spiritual? <laughs> Turns out they come from very different root words. So it was just kind of oh, a damn. a fun happenstance. It would be easy to read meaning into it, but not does
0: spit mean anything though?
1: Well, that's just part of you know spear like inspiration to breathe, inspire, aspiration. Spiral. Oh, Uh, mm. so, yeah, there was no real connection there, but I thought that was fun, so I thought I'd share it with all of you.
0: No, I'd like to think that it's like, spiritual is a spiraling ritual.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: one person did a ritual, and then it spirals out of control. Yeah, then
1: then it's a little bit of a portmanteau, two words put together.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, this ritual really got carried away.
0: Yeah. Boy, I'm deep. (laughs) Speaking of Father Gabriel Amorth, as we were a few minutes ago, he's the one called The Pope's Exorcist. When Bob was making the video, he mentioned that Amorth was in his 80s and still doing exorcisms. Worth noting, uh, he's passed now. He died in 2016. Right. But his favorite film was The Exorcist.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. I found this elsewhere. But yeah, and he was given a medal as a Nazi resistor.
1: Hey, all right. So- Oh, yeah, I he seems like pretty him.
0: dope based on very little research. Sounds like he um, would be a good hang. Exactly. Okay, but I have something to tell you. Ross, is it? I'm Ross. Before we move on, I was paying attention, first of all. That's the first thing for you to know. The second thing Gosh. to know is that I found two books about Mary Toft, and I want to read them both. Oh, she's the rabbit woman.
1: Oh, okay. I sent you down a literal rabbit hole, which in this case <laughs> might be a woman's vagina.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yes, correct. You said that more um, artfully than I did. <laughs> Unfortunately, no one names their book The Rabbit Hole of Mary Toft. Oh,
1: um, missed opportunity.
0: Idiots. But there is an illustrated... <laughs> book about her from march of this year 2020 i'm glad um, i got to tell you about this called the imposterous rabbit breeder (laughs) then there's also a novel based on her life from late last year called mary toft or the rabbit queen a novel oh listener let's all get very into mary toft shall we i'll put these both on our bookshop this might be
1: a a good one for the um the book club i belong to oh yeah
0: where we met
1: exactly Which just goes to show you, when you have that many people and that much time, you're going to get some weird stories. At some point, you will hear everything.
0: You're not wrong.
1: So, yeah, Bob was very proud that he had gotten to meet Gabriel Amorth. And Gabriel walked him around, even showed him where he, in his, like, exorcism room, like, where he has people lie down and how he straps them down with two-inch-wide nylon when he needs to. In a later unit, I think maybe in the third level, Bob will show us video of him with Gabriel Amorth. So we'll definitely come back to him.
0: Oh, okay. I didn't remember that. Okay.
1: He is a, a central figure here. But Bob said that Gabriel put a blessing on Bob and his wife and that even though he couldn't really officially acknowledge Bob because he's not part of the Catholic Church, he did tell Bob, you have no demons, only angels.
0: Oh, interesting. So, In that moment, at least.
1: Right. So at least that tells us we have some external confirmation, finally, that Bob, at least currently, does not have demons.
0: I still need to know if he ever has, but but good to know he wasn't in that moment in time.
1: Mm -hmm. And this is where Bob says, you know, we've had great people like him. And at the time, Amorth was still alive. He said, but he's in his 80s. I'm getting up there in age. We need the next generation. Who's going to carry on this important work? That's you. You can be that person. So
0: I picture uh, Uncle Sam pointing at me through the lens. Oh, yeah,
1: that famous uh, recruitment poster. I want you.
0: Or Smokey Bear if you prefer.
1: Okay, so on to Course 5, Satan and the origin of evil. This sounds good.
0: Okay, so folks, as you may know, the Bible tells the story of Satan's origins. Ezekiel and... Isaiah, really detail it. And so Bob breaks this down pretty well into what those two stories teach us about Satan. And it's pretty good at distilling it into pretty quick bites. In Ezekiel, we find out that Satan was created first. He was created before humans, at least, Mm -hmm. because he was already there in the garden when they appeared.
1: As were all angels, yep.
0: And animals, I suppose. You're correct. uh, All the animals. Oh, yeah.
1: But now this is where it gets weird and where, you know, it's up for interpretation and creativity was – the whole angel thing, did that happen in between the days of creation or was it part of an earlier creation that was then destroyed but they got kind of left over as the angels?
0: Mm, are they dinosaurs?
1: Right. Were they before all the days of creation altogether but just never had a physical world? These are interesting questions.
0: I would love it if it turns out the demons are just dinosaurs.
1: Hmm, this I'm, is what
0: they got stuck with.
1: I feel like – It would take a lot of work to make that happen, but it would be worth the work.
0: Demons are dinosaurs with British accents, and Canadians can spot them. Whoa. You heard it here. Okay, so also Satan was religious. Right. We learn.
1: And by the way, just speaking about Ezekiel 28, this was originally written as a prophecy against the king of Tyre. So at the time, it had its own meaning, for the, King. For, <laughs> yes. For, I
0: loved that show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it had its own contemporaneous meaning and purpose by the author, but then later on it gets used to pull double duty and talk about the origin of Satan.
0: Which, to be fair, is the more interesting part.
1: This is where you can say people are really reading into something that was written for one purpose and giving it a completely different purpose. The Bible doesn't clearly say, this is what happened with Satan. He fell out of the sky, blah, 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 blah. It's something that is written for a different purpose in kind of metaphorical language. And they strip out that one and say, aha, this is actually insight into Satan and his origins. So just so you know, the Bible doesn't have like a clear Satan origin story. It's all sort of supposition and reading into something written for another purpose.
0: But, all that aside, Satan was also a dope-ass musician. Mm -hmm. Apparently, he was stellar at various... I like to think he played the banjo.
1: I feel like Bob overstates the case. But yeah, he apparently played some kind of flute-like instrument.
0: I like a flute and everything, but I'd like him to play the banjo. Um, He was a cherub
1: before he fell. Yeah, and don't think of that as like the little chubby angel with its butt showing... We're talking about Cherubim. That's a mighty warrior angel.
0: <laughs> Don't picture the copper tone, baby. Don't
1: picture it. Don't look at that in your mind.
0: <laughs> he was in God's presence, of course, before the fall. Duh. Yeah. He was glorious and perfect and in obedience to God. He was beautiful. He wasn't this ogre with a pitchfork.
1: Yeah, but where um, was this? Bob kind of, I think, pitches it as being in Eden, which is really weird. None of this lines up, the whole Mm. angels living in Eden and then humans coming in. I don't think that makes any sense.
0: Oh, yeah. I just assumed this was all in heaven and then they kick Lucifer out.
1: Yeah, I guess so. But I guess heaven has streets and structures and I don't know. It has stuff. None of that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, it's like a kingdom of its own. That's
1: right. And then he was in Eden as the snake, which is also kind of a later idea. Right. It wasn't originally believed that the snake was Lucifer or Satan, but Revelation sort of clinches that deal, and then the early church really tied the identity of the snake to Satan. Genesis yeah. doesn't make that as clear.
0: Yeah, he was just a serpent. Just right? a Talk- shitty snake just who a- wants you to have knowledge. Just a you oh. know,
1: neighborhood garden talking snake. <laughs>
0: The last couple points from Ezekiel are that Lucifer was wise, but that wisdom became corrupted. And then, of course, that he was cast out of heaven.
1: Yeah. And there's also some weird little note about him having fiery stones. And Bob, Ooh, does-
0: my friend David has that. I hear it's really
1: painful. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't really know what to make of that. You walked among the fiery stones.
0: Oh, right, 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 right.
1: Yeah, and also Bob makes a big deal out of the fact that they list all of the precious stones that he was adorned with. And there's nine of them, but it's only nine out of the 10 that a high priest would wear on his ephod, you know, this kind of
0: breast
1: decoration that contains all 12 stones representing the tribes of Israel. So Bob felt there must be some kind of significance there, but wasn't ready to speak on that.
0: Which is interesting because when I read that passage initially, which is very beautifully written, I pictured... Satan being sort of underneath the mantle of the earth. And so he's covered with all the precious stones, meaning he's covered by stonework that makes up the earth.
1: Mm, mm. Which I
0: thought was sort of beautiful imagery, like you're covered in gems. you know. Oh, yeah. But nope, Bob says, nope, that's not what that means. And I say, okay, well, you're the boss.
1: Oh, yeah. I should mention uh, he does say that he came before Adam and Eve, but he can't be sure from the reading if Satan was the first angel created, but it's possible he was. Right. Uh, um, and I forgot an instrument. Satan also played the timbrels, which is like a tambourine.
0: Oh, not hard, Satan, but good for you. I'm sorry. All you tambourinists come at me. I'm sure it's very tough. Okay. Then Isaiah Mm
2: -hmm.
0: has more details about Satan. They add seven details, though, a couple of them are kind of redundant from our first list. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first is that Lucifer fell. The second is that he was a son of God. Oh, yeah. Was,
1: Bob's got to be very careful there. Like, But he's not like Jesus. He's not like yeah. the Mormons say. He's not a brother of Jesus. He's just like a son to God. He's not he's a- He's
0: not definite article, the son.
1: He's not begotten like Jesus. So he had to make sure to clear that up because many cults try to make Lucifer into God's son.
0: He was self-aware so mm. he, he could sin. Kind of a social climber. He wanted to get more power. Mm -hmm. That's me editorializing, not...
1: Sure, yeah.
0: Um, He wanted to rule heaven.
1: Which sounds like part of the previous point, but okay.
0: Yep. He was the original Antichrist. Interesting. And he will one day be cast into hell.
1: Yeah, and as Bob was giving us all these points of what we know about Satan and his origins from Ezekiel 28, and this was Isaiah 14, if you want to read those original descriptions... He was showing imagery, speaking of kind of where we get this iconography, he was showing William Blake engravings and Albrecht Durer engravings, which are really beautiful. It's just interesting to think about kind of the visual history of where these ideas come from and that Bob clearly uses.
0: So since his fall, Lucifer became wicked and evil and dark. He became a tempter, unclean, he targets believers to destroy God's good work and he disguises himself into an angel of light. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Bob gives us a lot of names of the devil from scripture. He calls him the accuser, adversary, angel of the bottomless pit, Apollyon, Beelzebub, Belial, the devil, an enemy, father of lies, murderer, old serpent, power of darkness, prince of the world, prince of the air, ruler of the darkness of this world, Satan, serpent, spirit that works in the children of disobedience, unclean spirit, the wicked one, and others. It was a very long list <laughs> with all the little scripture references. In the Bible, there's nothing that's like really clear about Satan. Everything is inferential and taken from little snippets out of context. So it's always- it's inter-
0: a Revelation.
1: Yeah, that's true. But even then, you've got this language of the beast and the dragon, and you have to say, wait, is that Satan or is that some other entity? So there's always a ton of conjecture applied in trying to get anything concrete about the devil. So just always keep that in mind. I will. Bob also has a list. He says the Bible's very clear about the devil's purposes. And Bob lists out his actions, again, with scripture references. He says that... Satan's all about afflicting believers, destroying God's work, distorting scripture, turning people away from God, initiating evil, seeking worship, for himself, of course, uh, disguising himself, misusing scripture, and taking advantage. So yeah, it sounds like a pretty bad dude, this devil character. Thumbs down.
0: Thumbs down. Hold
1: on. I'm going to give Satan a Yelp review. It's going to be thumbs down. Okay.
0: My good friend, Lindsay, the other day referred to the Better Business Bureau as Yelp for old people. <laughs> I thought that was so funny.
1: Ding, <laughs> Or maybe Yelp is the Better Business Bureau for young people. For Though, young people, yeah. I mean, that's not an unfair comparison because businesses do make changes based on Yelp reviews and trying to keep those positive.
0: That's true. That's but true.
1: there's no regulatory body involved in that. It's all kind of bottom-up Uh, In Yelp
0: and pretty much in the Better Business Bureau. Oh, really? Yeah, it's just like an independent company that like oh. does this thing, collects complaints.
1: Got it. Okay. Well, then, yeah. yeah. Uh, Somehow I saw it as more official in my mind.
0: I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people do.
1: But yeah, the basic story here about Satan is that he started out as great, glorious, powerful, beautiful, and impressive. Just the bee's knees. But then he fell.
0: And mighty was the fall.
1: Indeed. And you have to ask yourself, where did that come from? There had to be that kind of first sin. Who introduced that? Was it in Mm -hmm. his nature? Did God create that? I will leave that for you all to theologically ponder. But now we know who the enemy is, and we've reached the end of Course 5.
0: Clap 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 clap. Yay! Okay, that was exciting.
1: Next time we'll take you through the rest of level two, the warrior level. So I hope you're all feeling somewhat equipped. That maybe you now have a belt with a sword hanging from it, and maybe an individual pauldron covering your shoulder. But we're gonna give you the rest of the armor of God next <sighs> week.
0: Okay, okay, now I'm probably caught
1: up. (laughs) Carrie's like, where is Ross going with
0: this? (laughs) I did not understand, but now I'm there.
1: We will equip you with the breastplate of righteousness.
0: Put on the full armor of God. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Fight the good fight of the faith. Something like that.
1: Something like that.
0: Yes, as Ross mentioned, we'll be doing this second part of this level two next week, followed by some more readings. You're going to be with Bob Larson for a minute, so buckle up. And until then, that's it for our show.
1: Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton.
0: This episode was edited by Victor Figueroa.
1: Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer.
0: You can support this and all our investigations by going to maximumfund.org forward slash join, J-O-I-N.
1: And thank you for even thinking about doing that. And especially thank you to all the people who support what we do and make all of this possible and help us feed our cats and mm-hmm. dog
0: hmm and boyfriends.
1: And boyfriends. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to talk about that on the show, but okay. <laughs> uh, you
0: have boys who are your friends.
1: Absolutely. And you can also support us by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Spotify or...
0: Better Business Bureau.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you are of the proper age, please call the Better Business Bureau. <laughs> tell them how great we are. And tell a friend. We really appreciate that. Carrie mentioned bookshop.org. That's another way you can support us at bookshop.org slash shop slash oh no. That's where you can find books that we've recommended. Oh, I've got a couple I need to add to the list. I've read some good ones lately.
0: We have a separate list just for any books mentioned on the show that we're trying to grow out, and I'll be adding five from today's episode.
1: That's very impressive.
0: That's how quickly we name books.
1: We like books.
0: You can also follow us on social media on Twitter at OnoPodcast, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash O-N-R-A-C.
1: And remember, in the words of Bob Larson, telling us about Joe Biden. Joe Biden is cursed. That's
2: not a political statement. That's my analysis as an exorcist who deals daily with people afflicted by curses. When people ask me, how do you know if someone is cursed? I answer it this way, consider the facts. The forensic evidence of all the tragedy and trauma associated with a particular family bloodline. If the magnitude of all that bad is outside the normal statistical probability of what could go wrong in a family, at least some of the bad stuff is probably the result of a curse no question the Kennedys were cursed. And apparently, so are the Biden. Well, I I don't know. This isn't a political indictment. Just stating the facts and giving a warning. And a call to prayer for the Biden family. Someone needs to tell Joe Biden that until these curses are broken, sadly, more tragedy Maybe on the way.
0: Does our podcast deep dive into the weirdest Wikipedia pages we can find? Yes. Do we learn about scam artists, remote islands, horrible mascots, beautiful diseases, and mythical monsters? Yes, 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 absolutely, and yes. Do we retain any of this knowledge? Eh, uh, probably not. <laughs> I'm Emily Heller. I'm Lisa Hanawalt. We make art and comedy and TV shows and also the podcast Baby Geniuses. For the past eight years, we've been trying to learn new things about the world and each other every episode. But let's be honest, this podcast is mostly about two friends hanging out, shooting the breeze, and making each other laugh. We're horny, we like gardening, and Horses and we get real stupid on here, but like in a smart way. Yeah, join us every other week on Maximum
2: Fun.
1: Hey, friends, Jesse here, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have some really great news to share with you. This year has brought a lot of changes for all of us, and one tradition that we were grateful to be able to hold on to is our annual pin sale to benefit charity. This year, through your generosity and love of pins, you helped raise $95,400 for GiveDirectly. If you're a member and you bought pins, they'll ship in January. In the meantime, your support will provide direct cash relief to families impacted by COVID-19 across the United States. Even in this incredibly tough year, the MaxFun community remains extraordinarily kind. And whether or not you bought pins, you can continue to help by heading to GiveDirectly Org. that's always thank you.
2: Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.